Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? Doing well, Robert. How are you? I'm doing very well. Today on the show, we have Trey Watson, who is a Republican. He is uh, the founder of Capital Reigns uh, PR, a PR agency. He's worked for a ton of Republican candidates throughout the years. He's a campaign manager for Ryan Quarles at one point in time. He's worked for a ton of congressional candidates and stuff. He's a, a big creature in Republican politics. Uh, we talked to him about the 2023 Republican gubernatorial can, uh, campaign, which is the election is coming up in uh, just a short five or six months from now, which is just crazy to think about. So we talked to him about that. And then we joined him to talk on his show. He also hosts a podcast. He hosts Kentucky Politics Weekly. We joined him to talk about down ballot Democratic races. So definitely go check out his show over there to listen to us talk about those same kind of things. So Jasmine, we've just come from doing a lot of audio. What did you think about all yeah. of it? What did you think about how did, how did you think it went? Yeah, I thought it was good. It was, you know, it's pretty rare for us to have a Republican on the show. We have had a few, but they're kind of like sprinkled, you know, once a year or so. But you and I, like, don't have a really good sense of where Republicans... Well, I mean, we do a little bit, but he has a better sense of where Republicans are on the gubernatorial primary. So that's why we talked to him. And I thought it was a really interesting conversation. I think we kind of have... You know, we're looking at the race the same way um, that he is. um, But I think he had, you know, some added insight. And then um, I think our conversation with him was good as well. But you and I, we don't know who's running for the down ballot races. So we know nothing. Yeah. Yeah. He he definitely had all the inside information, same inside information that we had. So whatever sieve exists, it's pretty leaky. Uh, So, um, you know, there we, we did have a good conversation kind of about the general idea about who might run, um, who might be looking at it, why they might be looking at it, the types of candidates who might be interested in filing for it. Um, but yeah, that, that, that was how that conversation went. I thought, I thought it was still a good conversation, but I liked the one that we had on our show about the Republican primary because uh, it was a big sanity check for me. I'm looking at this and thinking about it in a certain way. And he said a lot of the things that I was already thinking, which makes me feel good about, about how I'm considering this race. Um, I think, uh, you know, he's close with Ryan Coral. So I think a lot of his things were pretty pro pro Ryan Quarles, but I think that's fair. I think Ryan Quarles has a good chance. And we, we talked about how, uh, the, how all of the major candidates might make their way through and some of the smaller ones too. So good conversation there on the show today. We're going to talk about a couple of big court cases. I'm going to be talking about oral arguments in an abor- the abortion case that's making their way its way through the courts. The Supreme Court heard uh, arguments about the injunction, so we'll talk about the details about all of that. Jasmine's going to talk to us about Franklin Circuit Court upholding the Republican maps, uh, which was a case that we've been paying attention to for a very long time. I guess they held the ruling until after the election because they impacted the, the race or impacted the maps. They didn't want people to get confused, but we have a ruling now. Jasmine's going to talk to us all about that. And we have several quick hits that we want to get to as well. So without any further ado, I'm going to talk about oral arguments in the abortion case. Okay, Jasmine. So when, while Kentuckians did reject Amendment 2 at the ballot box this year, Abortion is still not legal in Kentucky due to several laws passed by the state legislature, all of which have been since 2017 when Republicans took over the chamber, uh, the House. So last week, the Supreme Court of Kentucky heard oral arguments about two of those laws and is primed to make a judgment about the legality of abortion in Kentucky eventually. So the oral argument that we're talking about right now is actually about the injunction, which is currently blocking access to abortion in Kentucky. So back in July... Jefferson County Circuit Court clerk, or Judge Mitch Perry issued a temporary injunction against the state's trigger law and the six-week ban on abortion, allowing abortion care to resume in Kentucky briefly. But that injunction was overturned the next week by the Court of Appeals, and now the Supreme Court is hearing oral arguments to, about that injunction. That is what these oral arguments were about. They're not about the merits of the case. They're just about this injunction. But of course, with all of these things, they are kind of clues and hints and previews about what might be coming later. So the actual arguments involved the ACLU's Heather Gatnarik, who is a lawyer for them, and she argued in favor of abortion care. And then you had Matthew Kuhn from uh, Daniel Cameron's office, who argued in favor of the two laws uh, which ban abortion in Kentucky. 
The argument for the Attorney General's office is that even though Amendment 2 would have more directly denied constitutional protection for abortion, the Constitution still, even without that amendment, does not make room for a constitutional right to abortion. And the ACL argued that the bans interfere with women's rights to health care, and there was a lot of conversation in the oral arguments about the amendment vote as it was. The Attorney General's lawyer leaned heavily on the idea that there was no historical evidence that abortion was a topic during the writing of the the 1890, I wrote 1980, it's 1890 Constitution. Justice Lizbeth Hughes, is it Lizbeth or Lizbeth? How do you say that? Lizbeth. Lizbeth. Justice Lizbeth Hughes pushed back hard on that line of thinking, um, saying, quote, History agrees there were no women at the 1890 Constitution. Women did not have the right to vote in 1890. Women could not even own property. Um, So she didn't seem super impressed with that line of thinking. Justice Michelle Keller also pushed back by mentioning the fact that the state just rejected the constitutional amendment. And Justice Van Meter also asked about the lack of race and incest exceptions in the laws. In his coverage, Joe Sanka, who writes for the Courier-Journal, said that, quote, the most notable aspect of the hearing was Cameron's office arguing that the court should essentially write in a rape or incest abortion to its ruling, which the legislature consciously chose not to pass into law, unquote. Uh, so that's, I think, that goes against, like, originalist <laughs> thinking, like, well, just just do it yourselves and we'll fix it later for you, uh, seemed to be what the uh, attorney general was, was trying to say. So lawyers for the attorney general and then later Representative Jason Nemeth said that they would sponsor a bill adding a rape or incest exception to the ban. But, you know, last year, the abortion or the, the legislature refused to pass such an exception. And there's no guarantee that it would pass this year. So, Jasmine, I mean, as somebody who has argued appellate cases before, you have done that before, right? You've argued appellate cases or at least d- done some appellate cases before. What do you think about this line of argument that, like, the the justices should just, like, write it in themselves? I mean, it, it, it seems contradictory to... Their other main argument, their main argument is you can't just imply that there's a right to abortion, but they're saying you could write in a rape or incest, a a rape or incest exception. Yeah, I didn't listen to the oral argument, so I didn't hear them say that, but that. That is very interesting, if that's what they said. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. So so Gatnarik seemed to get far fewer questions than Kuhn, um, but was asked by Justice Van Meter about the lo- role of the legislature in the courts and whether this wasn't an excuse, uh, wasn't an issue for the legislature to handle and not the courts, which is very predictable. Um, the arguments lasted about an hour. Uh, the entire time, pro-abortion rights protesters chanted outside the, the courtroom. Um, and, and, and so, like, at the end of all of this, if the, if the Supreme Court does put the injunction back in place, another thing about this is that there is a 15-week ban, uh, which was passed at a separate time than the six-week ban and the trigger ban. And that that case is not part of this legis- or litigation, so it would probably still be in place. So even if they put the injunction there, um, abortions, like, uh, are needed after the 20-week um, uh, anatomy scan, uh, where you see like fetal anomalies and stuff like that, those would still be illegal. So, um, there would be a, uh, a ban for up to 15 weeks though. That would be that you would be able to get an abortion up to 15 weeks, uh, if an injunction were to go into place. So if the Supreme court grants the injunction, the next thing that would happen is that judge Mitch period, the uh, Jefferson County circuit court is going to issue his ruling on the merits of the case. I think that's highly likely to fa- favor the ACLU and Planned Parenthood based on the clues that we read from his original injunction. So this injunction could last a while because then, of course, I think probably what would happen at that point is whoever lost would appeal directly to the Supreme Court, which is a thing that they can do. They might go to the Court of Appeals first, but I think it's likely that they try to skip straight to the Supreme Court. Um, and, and then we would get an argument on the merits by this group. Um, I didn't really write any notes about this, but then Jasmine, you also have the Supreme Court elections that are over top. Lizbeth Hughes was one of the main people asking questions here. She is actually going out of the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Angela Bissig is coming in. I don't think that there's a lot of difference in terms of their, uh, uh, you know, legal opinions, but I wonder if she would be as uh, willing to to ask questions uh, on the Supreme Court. You, 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 you know, probably have more experience with, with uh, Justice Bissig or future Justice Bissig, Justice-elect Bissig than Justice me. Justice-elect. Yeah. Uh, do you feel like she would be able to play the role or be interested in playing the role that Lisbeth Hughes played in, in these oral arguments? 
I feel like maybe ideologically they are probably pretty similar, but I don't in that like I would say they're pretty like moderate and nonpartisan judges. Um I'm just not sure if she would ask a lot of questions at oral argument yet. You know, maybe that's something that you have to become more comfortable with. But I will say she she does not shy away from asking questions and trying to understand the issues at the circuit court level. She takes a lot of notes. And then something that I really appreciated about what she did that most judges didn't do was once counsel make their arguments, I mean, you wouldn't do this at oral argument because the appellate level is just structured differently. Um, but at the trial level, after counsel would make arguments, she would take notes and then kind of summarize them back on the record to make sure there isn't, there were errors or she's kind of like making findings on the record um, and making sure that she understands the issues. And so um, whenever she reads those back, counsel can correct her if, if she misunderstood. And so I do think that she really takes the time to under, try to understand issues. Um, so I, you know, I think that she'll um, kind of fit in pretty similarly to where Justice Hughes does on the Supreme Court. Yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, I think that that's kind of what I was thinking is that they'll likely vote the same way. But if this comes up for arguments in January... Um, how the arguments might go differently without Elizabeth Hughes there, um, who was asking some yeah, of these more pointed I, questions. That I'm not sure about because I'm not, I'm not sure how comfortable she'll feel asking questions, and that feels like a steep learning curve. Yeah, to me, but I, you know, yeah, I, I don't know. know. Yeah, and, and you know, as with all legal cases, there's is no timeline. Maybe we'll get argument. Or, arguments in December. You know, it's possible. I guess it would seem unlikely, um, but. It's certainly something that could happen. All right, Jasmine, I did a whole legal story. How did I do? Did I miss anything big that you feel like we should definitely talk about? No, I, you know, I think you, I think you got it. I think, you know, what's important to know is that like, this is just the ruling on the injunction. So this isn't the end of the case. And, and you're right. This is going to go back to the circuit court and then probably go back to the Supreme court after this and so um there's still a long road for this case yeah but i think you did a great job i appreciate that jasmine well why don't you tell us about this other legal case about um the the franklin circuit court upholding republican maps okay so of course a recap right before the filing deadline in January, we got newly redrawn state and federal maps, um, the, and then the Kentucky Democratic Party sued in Franklin Circuit Court. The lawsuit alleges that the state house and congressional maps constitute unconstitutional partisan gerrymandering, and then they also raised a challenge on House Bill 2, the state house maps, based on Section 33 of the Kentucky Constitution, um, arguing that they excessively and unnecessarily split counties into multiple districts without a legitimate purpose and impermissibly attached portions of split counties to others more times than necessary to achieve population equality. So um, their argument, the partisan gerrymandering argument is based on sections one, two, three, and six of the state constitution. Um, it's basically like a free and equal elections argument. And then the section 33 argument is a very specific one. So section 33 of the Kentucky constitution is specifically about apportionment. And it's the section that allows the general assembly to make the maps and it requires that districts be nearly equal in population as they can be without dividing counties. Um, and then it also says that no part of a county shall be added to another county to make a district, and the counties forming a district shall be contig contiguous. Um, and the, the 
the whole rule is longer than that, um, but it's really long and I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, but the argument is basically about splitting counties more times than necessary. And so the lawsuit alleges that 13 counties were split more than necessary and also alleges that 45 of the 100 districts have unnecessary county line spillovers. The new law did use the minimum number of county splits possible, but the lawsuit is saying you split them too many times. Does that make sense? Yeah, like there's two or three districts that include some of Jefferson and some of Bullitt. And what they're saying is like that is there that counts as one county split because you're only splitting Jefferson and Bullitt, but you split it like three or four times when you could have only split it like once. Right. So there, there's a lot of precedent about this, and, and we'll get into that a little bit. Then the lawsuit also mentioned, so the lawsuit is also about Senate Bill 3, and that's the congressional map. And specifically, that one is about the odd district, um, the first district that goes from far western Kentucky up to Frankfurt. Um, and so those are kind of the main arguments. So Judge Wingate of Franklin Circuit Court upheld the maps on November 10th, just two days after the election. And his order is over 70 pages long. Wow. Yeah. It, a lot of it was spent summarizing testimony because several experts and lay witnesses testified um, at the trial in this case. So there were experts for both sides and then lay witnesses as well. And so um, his analysis kind of came down to this. Um, first, the circuit court has jurisdiction and standing to hear the case. There was an argument made by the Commonwealth about standing, but that was disposed of pretty quickly. Second, acts of the General Assembly have a strong presumption of constitutionality. Um, and then we kind of get into the meat of the legal arguments. He did hold that House Bill 2 and Senate Bill 3 are both partisan gerrymanders. The judge gave no weight to the Commonwealth's expert, which I thought was really interesting that he did not find the Commonwealth's expert persuasive. Um, that was Dr. Voss, right? They had another one okay, okay. as well. So not, not Dr. Voss. It was their other expert. Um, but the their other expert was was testifying about the congressional districts and was testifying about like that we had to preserve they had to preserve this district because of this congressman that died. And it was just like kind of strange. And the the judge talked about how his own, he like discredited his own testimony several times and he didn't give that any weight. <laughs> um, so he did find that they were partisan gerrymanders. Um, but although he found that, um, he found that it's not expressly prohibited. Partisan gerrymandering is not expressly prohibited by the Kentucky constitution. And the plaintiffs failed to plead cognizable claims under sections one, two, three, and six or Section 33 of the Kentucky Constitution. So Sections 1, 2, 3, and 6 are kind of um, looser arguments, I guess. That's our free and equal elections clause and, um, you know, the right to be free from arbitrary power and the right to free expression, like all of those kinds of things. If the judge wanted to make a ruling like this is bad and therefore we shouldn't do it, it would be under one, two, three and six. And then section 33 is much more like specific in terms of like technically it's right or wrong. Right. Right. So the U S Supreme court left it to the States to assess gerrymandering under their state constitutions. And Section 6, which is our free and equal elections clause, is not in the federal constitution. So Kentucky does have stronger protections than the federal constitution. But what the judge said is that if you go back and look at the intent of Section 6, um, you know, all of the discussion 
at the convention is about preventing interference in election. And by equal, they meant having their vote counted. It's not talking about apportionment. That's what Section 33 is about. Um, And so that's why he didn't recognize this right under Section 6. Um, So the Section 33 argument is really where, like, the meat of the opinion is. And so we have a lot of precedent here. So in a case known as Fisher 2, the Supreme Court held that Section 33 requires that reapportionment has to be accomplished by dividing the fewest number of counties possible while maintaining a maximum variation of plus or minus 5% from the ideal to achieve like population equality. And population equality takes precedence over county integrity. And then new maps were passed in. So in Fisher 2, the map, the 1991 maps divided counties 48 times in the House and 19 in the Senate. So that's a lot of county division, considering there's 100 seats in the House and they were divided 48 times. Um, And so the proof showed that the counties could have been divided fewer times. And so those maps were tossed out. And that's when they came up with this rule. So new maps were passed in 1996, which gave us Jensen versus State Board of Elections. And Jensen dealt with what happens when you have counties large enough to accommodate a whole district um, that are then split up. And... The court said in that case, like the fact that a particular apportionment scheme makes it more difficult for a group in a particular district to elect the representatives of its choice doesn't render it unconstitutional. Um, And they recognize that apportionment is a political process and our constitution puts that power in the hands of a legislature that is political. And in that case, they held that the plan satisfies the constitutional requirements because it stayed within that plus or minus 5% for population variation. And it divided the fewest possible number of counties. So like that's the rule. As long as it stays within that, the maps will be constitutional. And Fisher 4 in 2012, those maps were overturned because they didn't follow that rule. Um, They did not divide the fewest counties possible, and they went slightly outside the 5% deviation. And the Democrats in that case tried to argue like, well, we think we should be able to slightly go outside the 5% to avoid splitting counties in the court reiterated that population equality takes precedence over county integrity. So all of that brings us to this case. And the party stipulated in this case that the minimum number of counties to be divided was 23. And that's what they did. They divided 23 counties. So it doesn't really seem to matter how many ways they divided them and whether they could have divided them fewer times, as long as they stayed within the plus or minus 5% range of population equality and make the fewest counting divisions. It seems like those are going to be constitutional under Jensen, the precedent from 1997. Yeah. So, so all that being said, um, you know, this has already been appealed up up the ladder. And so do you think that, that well, I mean, I, I don't want to ask you to like get into the head of Judge Wingate, but I do wonder like if by ruling that these were in fact partisan gerrymanders that just fit the technical definitions under Section 33 as the precedent had laid out, 
um, Judge Winkett isn't like signaling to the Supreme Court that like if you guys want to go a different direction and set new precedent, that's your job. But based on the precedent that you've already established, this fits that criteria, despite the fact that I am holding that it is a partisan gerrymander. I mean, so the opinion talked about the plaintiffs raised argument, you know, they relied on the North Carolina case where they found a partisan gerrymander unconstitutional based on their state constitution. And Judge Wingate was like, that was their constitution. This is our constitution. And our state constitution has been interpreted several times in these cases. And our precedent does not prohibit this. And so he was, he was pretty clear to me um, that the, that this was pretty simple Mm -hmm. to him. Um, Even though he was also like, yep, this is absolutely very partisan. Um, And so I I found the opinion like pretty fair and straightforward. And and he he gave, you know, it's it's not as if he took the Republicans at their word. He even said, I I don't believe you're expert. Um, And I, I give him his testimony no weight um and so I, I do think this is just based on that case i i think what it would take at the supreme court is, is some kind of recognition of you know a right under section six or, or something like that. Yeah. I I see what you're saying. And and it is just kind of, I guess kind of scary in a way, just because it's like the courts are kind of abdicating responsibility here and saying that like, that's not really our role. Like this is a political process. We aren't a political branch. You guys are trying to deal with this political problem. Um, and, and like, you know, we have lots of precedent that says, like, they can do the things. They fit the precedent that exists. They fit, like, the the laws that have been written. They have fit the Constitution. And based on just my job of calling balls and strikes, this looks fine to me. But the problem is that, like, it is a partisan gerrymander. He has held that. And, like, you kind of have, reinf- like, this reinforcing cycle where – if Republicans continue to win seats and in continue to win more and more seats, they can just continue to make the maps more and more partisan, partisanly gerrymandered. I mean, we are we should we we were, were shown that they could go from seventy five to eighty basically based on partisan gerrymandering alone, and like so that's just kind of like what are we supposed to do? Who is supposed to fix this problem? And there just isn't yeah there just isn't and, anybody who can. And do I mean, it. what I will say, I'm not sure the the court back in the nineties knew that oh, a one-liner saying that reapportionment is political would be used to uphold crazy yeah. maps much later. And and that, you know, that case wasn't unanimous. It had two dissents as well. And so may, maybe there is room um, to move, but... You know, I I didn't find I didn't find Judge Wingate's opinion to be I know people are upset about it, but I didn't find that he was being unfair yeah. to the plaintiffs in a certain way. Um he just he he just followed that case um pretty by the book even, even though the maps divide the counties mm-hmm. they make the fewest county divisions while dividing them in many many ways yeah yeah and i mean he what he said was like they did that for partisan reasons and the thing is there's just nothing to prohibit them from doing that and and i mean if you aren't going to read sections one two and three as in like an equal protection as including protection from partisan gerrymandering then yeah it totally seems fair 
to me, it seems like he had the leeway to do that. Like you mentioned, he had that like one line from that case in 1990 that he said, well, they already said it was a political process and that's what I have to go on. Um, but I do feel like if they're going to win at the next level, it's going to have to come from one of those, one of those, uh, equal protection kind of type cases. So, you know, uh, it's, it's tough. It's tough. They very clearly did everything they could to dot all the I's and cross all the T's and make it so that it passed muster. Uh, but it is, it is a gerrymander. Uh, and that is, that is all there is to it. So, all right. Anything else you want to say about that, Jasmine? The only thing I'll add, the Commonwealth actually filed a counterclaim and a cross-claim arguing that the 2012-2013 districts were unconstitutional. And so the court, because they're upholding the maps at this point, the court found that claim was not justiciable. Um, I'm not going to get into that, um, because, but you know, if it comes up in, in the future, maybe we will. Um, but for now... Uh, I guess we'll see. Why did they do that? <laughs> Just because they're still mad? I think it it was based on census data. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and so I don't know if the KDP has appealed yet. They they did. Well, it, okay. it, it doesn't really matter. They will if they haven't. Uh, it it will be appealed. I can guarantee you that. Um, okay. Before we go, uh, some quick hits. First of all, Daniel Cameron is being sued by the Kentucky Bankers Association. That was a surprise to me when I read it. Um, he's being sued over his rec- investigation into banks' ESG policies. ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance Policies. ESGs are in place to ensure that investments made by banks have a level of morality contained within them, and Cameron is investigating whether or not those practices block certain Kentucky businesses from accessing banking services, and that mostly relates to coal companies, which still exist in Kentucky, even though there's much less coal mine there now than there was 10 or 15 years ago. Um, yeah, and, and basically e- environmental governance would say like, hey, we shouldn't invest in coal mines because they're cooking the planet. Um, and Daniel Cameron's saying you can't do that. Uh, anyways, the subpoenas issued by Cameron, though, to, to like investigate this are very broad and if allowed to exist could lead to Cameron's office doing things like dictating interest rates or hiring practice. That's at least what the banking association is saying in their lawsuit. Um, Apparently he was trying to institute a level of surveillance over banks that they felt was deeply inappropriate. Next up, Ryan Quarles, a different candidate for Kentucky governor. He published an academic paper in the Kentucky Journal of Equine, Agriculture, and Natural Resources Law. It's about hunger and his interpretation of how laws in Kentucky made food insecurity worse or better and how his office responded during the COVID-19 pandemic, just kind of talking about some of the things that they did to reduce hunger in the midst of the food system, kind of like experiencing a lot of stress and breaking down in some ways. He did not at all mention SJR 150 or HB3, which significantly reduced the impact of SNAP, which is the Federal Food Assistance Program in Kentucky during the 2022 session. It is kind of like incongruous to me that you have this Republican candidate who's making hunger and food insecurity a central part of their platform, form a central part of their campaign pitch when we have this republican legislature that's basically doing anything that they can to reduce food benefits and uh, like snap benefits to to uh, individual kentuckians it seems a little incongruous to me um i don't know jasmine anything about ryan quarles or daniel cameron in these cases not for quick hit purposes we've been recording for two hours (laughs) Last thing to say, uh, the Republican House caucus met after the election to elect leadership. The biggest change is that Jason Nemes of Louisville will replace Chad McCoy, who is retired, now retiring at the end of the year as majority whip. Nemes is the only Louisville representative in House Republican leadership. I guess that's good for the people in Louisville, um, although he does try to mess with the boundaries or the, the laws of how Louisville can govern itself quite a bit. Uh, anything to say about Jason Nemes, even though we have been recording for two hours here, Jasmine? He tweeted about us this week. He said he listens to the show. So Yeah, that was really nice of him. It was nice of him. Yeah, absolutely. All right. All right. That's it. Let's get to our interview with Trey Watson. Trey Watson is the founder of Capital Reigns PR and a former Republican politico- political consultant and staffer. He's also the host of Kentucky Politics Weekly, a different podcast about Kentucky politics from a mixed or Republican perspective. He's got a long history of operating 
in Kentucky politics and government. And we asked him to come on and talk to us about the 2023 Republican gubernatorial primary, which is just six short months away. Um, So Trey Watson, welcome to my old Kentucky podcast. Might be short for y'all. It's going to be really long for a lot of Republicans. (laughs) (laughs) It's the longest, shortest time. Right. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. uh, Great great to be on. By the way, I I told uh, at the end of my podcast, we recorded on Friday uh, with Matt Irwin. I said that that we were going to be doing this and it it elicited a very large vulgarity. He was excited to hear that we were doing it. And Matt's been trying to get get me to get us together for quite a long time. Uh, So he's been successful finally to do that. Um, I told my father-in-law you were coming on and he said, oh, the Republican KET guy. So you can add that to your list of uh, <laughs> nicknames. So there you go. Um, all right. So, yeah, we did want to talk to you about the the Republican primary because, you know, Jasmine and I obviously are looking at it through Bashir colored glasses for sure. And uh, getting somebody who uh, actually has some skin in the game to talk about this Republican primary, which is going to be pretty wild, we think, uh, would, would be, I mean, I think... Uh, elucidating for for the people who listen to our show, just to, to from from the perspective of somebody who really cares about how this is going to end up. Um, you know, back in 2019, the gubernatorial race was as close as it possibly could be. You know, we were waiting on those returns from Western Kentucky till you know the very last votes were counted before we could say that Governor Bashir won. And of course, some folks from Matt Bevin's campaign wanted it to keep going even longer than that. But going into 2023, you know, uh, Democrats have looked at the high approval ratings that have come out from public pollsters about Governor Bashir and this very fractured Republican field, and say, hey, maybe. Maybe there's a chance that that Governor Bashir might might actually win a re-election. It looks, you know, maybe maybe he should even be favored. But uh, you know, it's really clear that Kentucky's a state that that favors Republicans. Uh, there's no doubt. We have 80 members of the uh, House that are now in Republican control. Every uh, constitutional office that isn't the governor, both uh, you know, both uh, senators, almost all of the House members, etc. So from from a Republican perspective, from your perspective, Trey, what uh, how vulnerable do you think Governor Bashir actually is? I think I think he's less vulnerable than a lot of Republicans would want to believe. But I do think he's very vulnerable. Like you said, it is a red state. You know, he won by 5000 votes. The next closest Republican or next closest Democrat was uh, uh, Heather Heather French. Yeah. And she lost by what, 40,000. So, you know, and it was we go into the multitude of reasons that Matt Bevin lost. And, you know, there are lots of them, but it was. Even beyond the most glaring ones, there was also death by a thousand cuts with lots of really small local issues that just that just killed him. You know, he get, gets involved with the with the bridge tax in Old Kentucky, gets involved with the with a fight with the Warren County Judge Executive over an ambulance certificate of need issue. That just little things that cost him a hundred votes here, two hundred votes here. So, you know, Bashir, it'll be hard to get the same coalition that he had because he's going to be lacking those death by a thousand cuts that Bevin had working against him. He he is going to have a lot of money. Although I, I believe that the money that's going to be spent by the candidates themselves will be dwarfed by whatever is spent by the RNC, the DNC, the, R, the RG, and the DGA. So, you know, candidate money is at some point going to become immaterial because you run out of things to buy and there's going to be so much outside money. But, you know, it does help. And he does have high approval ratings. The one thing that I always caution about approval ratings, though, is approval ratings are just that approval ratings. Mitch McConnell, every six years, destroys whatever Democrat runs up against him. And he, and, and when people walk in the polls, he has an approval rating of like twenty four percent, and he still wins a massive margin. So approval rating and it, it doesn't always translate to 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 election numbers. So that's that's the one thing I would caution Democrats. But yeah, I, I think it's going to be a very very tough race, especially depending on who the nominee is. Yeah, one of the things that I've mentioned uh, in talking about this race quite a bit was in 2019, I felt like, you know, Governor Bashir was a bit of a blank slate. I mean, he had a record from being the attorney general for four years, but I think uh, his, his kind of mantra as the attorney general was to kind of like, you know, get out in front of as many issues as you possibly could, but also just don't step on as many toes uh, in the middle of people who might possibly vote for you. And, and now he's kind of running with the record. And I think that there's positive and negative aspects of that. But, you know, you, you like you said, approval ratings are just approval ratings. But with Governor Bashir now running with like four years of a record with all of the things that happened during the COVID pandemic, everything that happened with the natural disasters last year, I guess this year, uh, still. Um, I mean, do you think that that matters? Do you think that his record will help or hurt him uh, overall um, as as we roll into 23? Look, no, nothing's real till it's on TV. So I think it all depends on, on who, A, who the Republican nominee is, and B, how good is their messaging team? How much, how many points they put behind it? And how, how well can they define and 
come up with a message that cuts through the he you know pictures of him comforting people in East Kentucky and West Kentucky and pushes through you know reminds he reminds angry parents uh, about schools being closed, people who work for small businesses that might have closed and never reopened, um, you know, people getting arrested at churches on Easter. Yeah, how 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 well can you how well can the can your messaging team create a message and feed it to the public and and will will it take a look cut through? So it's you know that's a question for for the ad wars there. Yeah, I think we're going to be hearing a lot about COVID um, during the 2023 campaign. But you mentioned it, it depends on who the Republican nominee yeah. is. So that's kind of what we want to talk to you about. We want to talk about some of the candidates. One of your previous jobs was campaign manager for Ryan Quarles. And it seems like his support is coming from Republicans who really care about Kentucky state government. You know, do you think that that's a fair assessment and what would it take for Ryan Quarles to win the primary? I think that's, this is going to be, and I've had this conversation with, uh, actually it was funny because a reporter from the national journal called me to talk about this race back in August or so. And she actually totally changed the story that she was writing based on the conversation that I had, because I, I told her, I said, listen, this is going to be really interesting because this is, this election is going to be a competition between the new national, everything's national, everything's media based campaign versus the Paul Patton, uh, Wallace Wilkinson, tried and true, worked for 100 years Kentucky campaign. You know, Ryan Corls is running, thanks to the thanks to the swing in, lo- in local elections and, and who, who the local elected officials are, you know, he, he can run that old school race. He's going out and getting the magistrates and the commission and the commissioners and the county judges and the clerks lined up, get your, get your people in a row and get them to turn out the vote for you. That's worked for 100 years in the state. So the question is, will that still work in an election like this? Or have we moved into a new phase of campaigning where Kelly Craft and Daniel Cameron, who was able to come in with money and national issues, can they just barrel over the local the, the, the local power brokers? I, I think that, you know, it's really a question of which do you do you believe that the Paul Patton campaign can still win in this state? Well, a follow up there about that. So you mentioned, you know, that that type of campaign, which has always been really successful, but it's been very successful on the Democratic side for a long time. And Republicans in the state have often just kind of <laughs> I mean, the, it's kind of crazy to think about in 2022 that it used to be this way. But Republicans were like, does anyone want to do this, please? You know, and you may end up with uh, Peppy Martin. Or whoever. <laughs> Peppy Martin, I was yeah. going to say. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and, and, you know, all of these new local officials, all of these new commissioners, magistrates, judge executives, clerks, state legislators, all of that level of government. These are all brand new people. When you're walking in as Paul Patton, you're talking to the guy who's been the the you know the judge executive in Jackson County for 40 years or whatever. He's been through a bunch of gubernatorial cycles. He knows how to be courted. He knows how to listen to these people. He knows how to turn his people out. Do you feel like that that type of campaign, which has been successful for a long time, do you think that Ryan Quarles and his staff are going to be able to execute that and actually have that work for them on the Republican side next year? Look, to be elected county, county judge executive or to be elected, you know, jailer or to the school board or a magistrate, you got to have connections. You got to have an ability to get people out the polls. It's a reason that you that that turnout numbers always get really funky, especially in primaries and local election years versus versus presidential years is because, you know, you might have a sheriff who's got 80 people that only go to vote when he's on the ballot. So the question is, you know, can can you get that guy on board and can he get those 80 people who only go to vote when he's about? Can he get them to show up to vote for you? Even if, even if you only get half of that 80, boom, that's a, that's a huge swing. So, you know, I, yeah, the people are new, but the methodology is the same. And, and, you know, they got elected using the same tactics that people got elected, you know, 40 years ago on uh, out in these rural counties. And, and honestly, a lot of these people, <laughs> they were Democrats two or three years ago, four years ago. You know, Dan Mosley, sporting Ryan Corals in, in Harlan County, he was a Democrat, what? Uh, 18 months ago or so. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, they changed, they, they changed parties, but some of them are the same people, but the tactics they use to get to those offices are still the same. So, you know, but at the end of the day, Ryan's got a path to victory and he's got to shoot that shot and execute that strategy. It may win, it may not, but, you know, that's, that's where he's going to have to run if he wants to win because he's the only person in that lane. Yeah, and, and it does sound like we're thinking about this race in quite a bit the same way. Um, you know, the other side of that is is Daniel Cameron, of course, who has the endorsement of President Trump, um, and you know, uh, maybe maybe that's it. And, and up until 
like maybe the the midterm election that seemed like a huge deal it seemed like you know he had president trump had been a kingmaker in so many of the republican primaries going back for such a long time but so many of president trump's like favorite candidates across the country really kind of fell flat uh and i mean whether or not that's like actually real or not that's the media narrative that's kind of evolved out of the the uh the midterm uh this time so so looking at this um do you still feel like or, or i guess the question is how big of a deal is uh president trump's uh endorsement in this race going to be especially since they're going to be running at the same time together the, the kentucky gubernatorial race will be as the the republican presidential primary is ongoing and president trump is actually running for office at the same time so you know maybe one of these other candidates will be able to get a ron DeSantis or a chris sununu uh endorsement and that might be worth more um do you feel like president trump and daniel cameron's fates are tied together and is there anything to the daniel cameron campaign besides uh donald trump endorsed me well it's i mean it's gonna be hard to tell again you know, it's it's question of how, of how you leverage it um i'll say i, I thought daniel would have put up about a five hundred thousand dollar number last reporting quarter last reporting period uh would but she he was at about 400 so i thought that came in a little bit low i think his number the quarter before that was definitely low so he's definitely not seeing the small dollar donors that you would hope to generate off the off the trump endorsement um but you know you also have the situation where there's other candidates in this field who are going to make making a play for those Trump voters. It's not like he's going to be the only person out there running. You have Savannah Maddox, who's still on her website, advertised that she was endorsed by Donald Trump. You know, it was in her house races, but she's claiming it. You have <laughs> you have uh you have uh, the the bulldog out there, uh, uh, Eric Dieters. You know, he, he's he's going to be saying, "I'm the I'm the Trumpiest of the Trumpers." So you know, <laughs> that that lane is not empty. Yeah, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I always like to think about these these primaries, especially when you get a bunch of candidates, as you know, almost as a as a drag race. You know, and if you if you want to win, you gotta have you gotta have your lane clear to get ahead. Well, Daniel's lane is is crowded now. They're they're smaller, slower cars, but still, he's got people that he's got to maneuver around. Whereas Ryan and Kelly Craft uh, have have a little bit uh, emptier emptier paths in front of them. So Kelly Craft is kind of who we wanted to talk about next. She has millions of dollars at her disposal and she wasn't shy about spending money around during the 2022 midterm races in the state legislature however at least to us it doesn't seem like her message so far has had a lot of substance um is is there something about her that appeals to republicans that we haven't seen yet let me preface this by saying I I love Kelly Craft. She she and I are, are friends. I've known her for. She did a fundraiser for the first candidate I worked for in Kentucky. Uh, Mike Farmer ran for state house against Susan Westerman in two thousand six. Uh, she and her previous husband had, had a fundraiser for, for us. I've known Kelly for a long time. Um, I but you know outside of the basically people she's done favors for in the past constituency. I just you know there's not a huge clamoring for it out there. What I'll tell you is I you always look for historical examples and historical uh, correlations. I worked for Billy Harper in 2007. Uh, you know, Billy got in early. He spent, he was up on TV before the election was freaking over in 2006. Uh, he had high priced out of state consultants. A lot of people don't know this, Robert, you may not even know this. Our consultant was Dick Morris. I did. Yeah, no, I did know that. Yeah. (laughs) First race he worked on in the U.S. since Clinton in 96. (laughs) I used to have to go pick Dick up at the airport and he'd be like, hold on a second. I got to go do a Hannity hit. I'll be right back in the room. Uh, But uh, (laughs) like Princess Caroline's calling. I got to take this. Uh, But, but, you know, Billy, Billy just he he struggled to get a constituency because you got to his Lincoln Day dinners and stuff. And, you know, people were the end of the governor. I think you got to Kelly goes to his Lincoln Day dinners. People are going to be with Daniel or Savannah or Ryan or or even Mike Harmon. You know, so how does she generate the grassroots? And if you don't have the grassroots, then you have to go out and kind of buy it. And that dramatically increases the cost of your campaign because you're going to pay door to door knockers. You're going to have to pay drivers. You're going to pay. It it just it. Now she doesn't have money to cover it is the question. And but again, she has out-of-state consultants who, by the way, almost botched a slam dunk state senate race uh, this this cycle. So you know, I, and and I, I also heard a lot of complaints out of D.C. from Axiom on some of the governor's races that they were running this year that they were kind of resting on their on their young and laurels, and that they you know they they there was a couple races that they might have they Republicans might not have won, but they would have been closer had they not kind of screwed around during the summer and messed them up. So, you know, I, 
there's a lot of questions on uh, her team and can they execute a Kentucky campaign to get her through? I just had a follow-up question too about kind of like what she's running on. So I think Daniel Cameron, he's kind of using the Trump endorsement, but he also, you know, he does have a platform to run on. He, he's kind of talked about fighting against abortion and the work he's done as attorney general. And then Ryan Quarles has, you know, years of work in, Kentucky government as the ag commissioner and in the legislature. And I mean, what do you think Kelly Craft's message and her pitch is? I mean, I think her, her message is, you know, I was someone who was picked to be ambassador to Canada, to be the ambassador to the United Nations. Um, I run successful charities. I can put, you know, I, I can bring people together, which at the end of the day, the, you know, you're the governor, you're not running anything. Your, your job is to go out and, and build, build a team that can, 90% of the time run stuff and the 10% of the time that they're not, they're, they're synthesizing information, bringing it to you and, and you're, you're, you know, make, making an executive decision. But at the end of the day, the job of the governor is team building. And I think that's, that's, that's Kelly's argument is I'm, I'm a good team builder. Yeah. And, and when you're talking about like historical, you know, the historical precedents for Kelly Craft, and you mentioned, uh, Billy Harper, which is uh, definitely somebody I think about also, but he was running against, you know, an unpopular incumbent, but he was taking on an incumbent Republican governor. And also it was a, a pretty crowded primary because wasn't that also the year that Ann Northup decided? That yeah, she would get it was, in? yeah, it was with, Billy and with, Billy and Ann and Ernie. And Ann Northup also had Jeff Hoover on her ticket, right? Who was like yep. the Republican leader. So it was kind of strange where it was like, well, we have the default uh, who's the guy who's already there, who's almost certainly going to win. But then the alternative is also this like person who held high office in Louisville and the Republican leader in the legislature. And all of a sudden, you just kind of have this third guy with a lot of money. And um, this is kind of an oddly fractured field. Uh, I, you, I think I think it's probably a closer correlation to, to the 07 Democrat primary, honestly. Yeah, sure. You got, you got Lunds, Lunsford, yeah. Henry, Lunsford, Henry Bashir. Those are kind of your three, you know, your your, hey, your Ryan Kelly Cameron. Don't skip out on uh, Jonathan Miller and uh, there was well, I know why. Well, I'm going to I'm going to mention him a little bit as, as we move down the list of candidates. <laughs> sure. Now, yeah. but but now the real question is who who is Otis? Yeah, who, oh. who in the Republican field is oh, Otis, yeah. Otis the Bullman? Got about that guy, man. What a race! What a race! That was, uh, <laughs> Yeah, that was the last one I worked on before I took a very long break. Yeah, uh, that was uh, yeah that that we'll, we'll, we can we can talk about the 2007 primary. So I, I, I remember there was a, there was a forum. I think it was an AARP forum at the Kentucky History Center, and some older person in the back of the the back of the room like passed out or had a medical emergency, and it was like a, Steve Henry and Ernie Fletcher were like throwing people out of the way to be <laughs> to the, doctor, the doctor to get back there. To- <laughs> <laughs> yeah all right yeah uh and and well did you ever what was the building that billy harper's uh campaign headquarters was in lexington it was like an old bank oh yeah it's it's, a, it's that it's that yeah, it's it's a bank again now it's right down there right right before we get to ashland yeah, uh, I, yeah. I, I, I was i was the one who helped find it i mean it was they, they were just it had been vacant for like four years and they were just trying to do something with it and we we're like well we can short-term lease it from you we got a hell of a deal we used the bank vault to store the t-shirts in it and then you had this sign. I always like that. The, yep. sign, the sign stayed up way longer than the candidacy, actually. And, and, and every every Friday we grilled burgers at the parking lot. Oh uh, yeah, I had, you know what? I, w- I was living in Lexington as a college student then, so I rode my bike by and got some burgers. <laughs> and it did happen at least once. Uh, okay, the last, I guess, kind of the last major candidate. You can disagree with us later if you'd like to, but uh, Savannah Maddox. And you talked about lanes, and that is certainly somebody with. Well, I don't know. Uh, I think. I, I, you kind of lumped her in with Daniel Cameron and, uh, you know, Eric Dieters and a couple of these more like Trumpy folks. But to me, I think she occupies maybe a more unique lane than that. I think a lot of people have made a Trump comp, and I, I don't really see that. I think she's significantly smarter than Donald Trump, significantly more sophisticated, uh, and um, honestly has a more has a, has a more like solid and straightforward political ideology, uh, even if it's scary to me. Um, yeah. And really the far right in Kentucky is stronger now than it ever has been before. I think Donald Trump helped that even though he was kind of an imperfect messenger for that group of people. And Savannah Maddox is kind of more perfect for that group of people. Um, you know, there's, there's three, I mean, you talk about Kelly Craft, Daniel Cameron and Ryan Quarles kind of going after the, the majority of the vote. If the Republican primary voter is trying to think about who among these people are we trying to vote for, if they're splitting that, the far right can, uh, you know, maybe 
picks of animatics in the same way that they ended up selecting Matt Bevin back in 2015 uh, in a divided field. You know, Matt Bevin then went on to win uh, the general election and, and what really shocked everybody at the time. So, I mean, what do you think about her chances both at, with this lane open potentially? Is that a real lane? And then what do you think what would happen if she became uh, the, the nominee? Would she increase or decrease the chances of the Republicans uh, winning the, the governorship? I think she definitely decreased the chances of Republicans winning, but I, I think she's got a very well-defined, and I, I don't know that I can put an exact number on it, whether it's 12%, 14%, 15%. I, I think she's got a very well-defined ceiling and floor. I, I think she doesn't have much wiggle room. I think if, she, if her ceiling's 15%, her floor's 11 You know, I, I think she's her voters are her voters, and, and she's going to get them, and I just don't know how I, – yeah, I don't know how a, a voter is going to be like, well, I'm between Ryan Quarles and Savannah Maddox. I'm between Kelly Kraft. You know, there's just – there's not a lot – there's not a lot of pivot room there for for Savannah to go. Now, if Savannah were to become the nominee, what would have, have to happen probably is at least one other unexpected major nominee – major candidate would have to get in and really fragment this thing. And, you know, it had to be something where that 15 to 16% plays. You know, you can you could potentially roll out of a primary somehow taking this thing. Uh, if, if you followed the Oregon governor's race at all, Oregon Republicans, Republican primary race uh, this year, that, you know, that was kind of a similar scenario. I think the nominee got up with like 24 percent or something like that. You know, I, the, it would have to be something like that for Savannah to to, you know, it almost be like compared to the, to the Derby this year, like rich, rich strike. It has to be like a complete and total pace breakdown up at the top for her to be able to to squeeze through with her, you know, somewhat solidified but also capped voter base now i do think the one thing that sh- that's important about her being in the race is that probably prevents uh if not prevents him from running at all definitely prevents matt bevin from winning if bevin were to just wake up on filing day and say oh i'm gonna run for governor which you know th- that's not outside the realm of possibility uh but i think it makes it very hard for him to win with her in the race because they're they're gonna just siphon off each other's votes Every every Democrat in the state has convinced himself that Matt Bevin is getting into this race. Uh, I I I'll be on the record by saying I 100% do not believe that he will be a candidate. Um, but you know he's also I, very I, unpredictable as a person. Yes. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I, I will I will say there's two two other candidates I want to bring some attention to, and and I'll and I'll tell you why. One is Mike Harmon. Um, you know I know everybody kind of laughs at Mike Harmon. Mike Harmon has a very strong. Uh, hold on a on a section of evangelical voters. Mike Harmon will surprise everybody. He will get six to eight percent, if not maybe a little bit more of the vote. He he has a very strong hold on evangelical voters. Um, he's he's going to do well there. It's not going to cost him much money to get him. Uh, I don't know where he goes from there with that, yeah, you know, with that with that number that he's got. But it, he's you know he, he's he's going to be locked in for a higher percentage than most people think he'll get. The yeah. other is is Alan Keck, who got in yesterday. Um, Alan Keck is the mayor of Somerset. He's got a little bit of personal wealth. I've been told he can probably put, you know, five, five hundred, $750,000 in the race, which doesn't fund, a, doesn't fund a campaign, but it brings you back up to parity with, with the people that are, that are in right now, you know, outside of Kelly. Um, you know, and he's, he's going to make a play for that East Kentucky vote, but I'll, I'll mention earlier, I want to go back to, to 2007. If you remember there, there, there was a crowded field up at the top of that race and you had, you had not a, not a hair between, uh, Lunsford, Henry, and Bashir. And when Jonathan Miller dropped out and endorsed Bashir, that's what slingshotted around the field. So I think, you know, I don't believe that Harmon would get out, I, but I would keep an eye on Alan Keck. I think that's somebody who's pragmatic, who uh, who wants to go places. And, you know, I think that that could be somebody to play, potentially play that Jonathan Miller role and maybe drop late and endorse somebody and, and be that spring shot. Well, when you talk about Mike Harmon having the lock on evangelical voters, which is a small but important part of uh, like that, that type of evangelical voter being a small but important part of the primary electorate, Jonathan Miller had uh, a lock on young voters in, during that election, which is very important in the Democratic primary. And I do think that that there were a lot of young voters that uh, were all in for Jonathan Miller, but he wasn't going to get af- out of like seven or eight percent or whatever it was. And that did help him because it was a specific constituency that wasn't going to go to any of the others more naturally. Yeah. I wanted to ask about Alan Keck specifically because for a very long time in the state, uh, when we talk about Democratic primaries, there was conservative Democrats, liberal Democrats uh, going up against each other for like 
the, the heart of the party. And in, on the on the Kentucky side, as opposed to like the national side, you did kind of have both of those sides duke it out and both sides winning at different times. When Alan Keck announced yesterday and said he was all in for increased teacher pay, all in for universal pre-K, that kind of stuff, are we starting to see as Republican dominance kind of solidifies in this state, are we going to see a more diverse ideological spectrum on the Republican Party like we did in the Democratic Party, uh, you know, in history, or is kind of the natural state of things where Republicans are conservatives and Democrats are liberals? Is that just going to be the case? Is Alan Keck just kind of a, a, a strange, odd person who has these sort of idiosyncratic, heterodox, uh, like beliefs about about politics? I think he's pragmatic. I think he looked at the field and said, I'm from Somerset. I'm going to make a play for the old fifth. Uh, you know, we got a lot of counties where the school board's the number one employer. Um, you know, we don't have a lot of ch- I'm, you know, what issues can I take a stand on that can eat into the support of some of these other people in the areas where I think I can compete? And I think that, you know, again, like like Savannah Maddox, he needs a pace breakdown at the top. And if he's going to be if he's going to be a player, it's going to be because he somehow hoovers up, you know, 15, 20, 30, 40 percent of the vote in the old fifth and then maybe picks off some some weak, uh, weak coral support in West Kentucky and just gets maybe former East Kentuckians now living in Louisville and Lexington. You know, that's that's if Keck's got a path to victory, that's it. And he's going to have to figure out ways he can appeal to those voters. And, and a lot of what you're talking to a lot of Democrats who switched parties and that, you know, it, when you when you change that registration, you don't change all your issues. You just change the piece of paper and. You know, I think that that's a play to to the to the world Democrats who still you know care about the school board and they got you know aunts, uncles, and cousins that that work at the school. I think that's you know I think that's what that that was about. Yeah, I think you mostly already answered our last question about some of the other players. But is there anyone else you wanted to mention, or you know, some of these other candidates you mentioned? You know, if if Keck drops out of the race and his endorsement can mean something to some of some other candidate, um, but what role might other candidates play in the primary as it evolves? I mean, I think that's the biggest thing is that you know Keck's going East Kentucky. Uh, and 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 rural uh, Ryan is going rural and and kind of county courthouse. Savannah's going Liberty with a little bit of Trump. Cameron's going Trump. Kelly's going kind of you know business country clubby. Uh, Republican Harmon's going uh, uh, evangelical, and so everybody's kind of you know going their directions for right now. But you know when we get further into this thing, they're going to have to start trying to pick off votes from each other. Now, the one thing that that I've talked about with a couple of reporters is. Uh, let's say everybody execute executes their campaign. They got the campaign plans. We kind of know where everybody wants to go. Let's say everybody executes perfectly. There's no, there's no hiccups. There's no scandals that come out. Um, nobody runs out of money. You know, everybody kind of runs their races right. And I think at the end of the day, the the two again, you, you break it down the lanes and who's got the le- least amount of traffic in front of them and who has the most uh, tangible, foreseeable path to the nomination. And I think it comes down to Kelly and Ryan. I, I think Ryan's got going to be very strong in the rural areas. I think he's going to overperform most people's expectations in, in some of the urban areas because of some of the stuff he's done, like the hunger initiative, uh, doing a lot of stuff with the craft breweries. Uh, you know, I think he he's he's going to play his hand on the you know grassroots, and then Kelly's obviously going to fight the air war. And I, you know, if again, if everybody if everything plays out and everybody runs their races good. <laughs> and they execute the strategies well. I think that that you know it's, it comes down to Corals and Corals and Kelly. Of course, that never happens in a campaign. Well, but, <laughs> but, but you know, that, I think yeah. I think that's I think you know where we're sitting right now, uh, six months out. You know, that's just trying to future cast. That's where we're sitting right now. I, I the only thing I would say I think that that's a smart analysis. The thing that I would wonder is the thing you brought up at the very beginning, which is like, does the type of campaign that Ryan Quarles want to win work? Uh, and, and I think that that's actually more of an open question um, than, than than we think right now. Like, maybe it just doesn't. You know, maybe it just like yeah. this sort of thing just doesn't end up working. And also, you know, one of the things that we <laughs> discount at our, our peril always is the power of President Trump. Like, I, I mean, how many times have we been like, oh, this guy's finished. There's no way that this is going to work out for this guy. And 
and, and every time you're just like, well, that doesn't really matter. Trump is toast. He's over or whatever. It may come down to it. It has shocked me over and over and over again that it turns out that just Donald Trump is all that matters in a Republican primary. The, the, one, the one thing I'll say is he was he has proven to be historically less effective in governor's races than anywhere else. That's true. Yeah. Um, you know, you look at Brian Kemp, you know, um, I think it was a couple. Of, there, yeah, that there guy that three, the secretary, Brad Raffensperger, or what? No, who I forget who the other guy was. Yeah, yeah. Um. Well, he, I don't think Trump liked the nominee in Colorado either. Like, there, there was there were four or five this cycle that Trump didn't like, and you know, because because I think I think that governor is a unique office, especially in Kentucky. But you know, we we always hear that campaign as well. You know, Kentucky's different. It's not Kentucky's not really different. But I, you know, on this one, I I do think it's we're not different, but I do think it is a stronger. Uh, a, a stronger statement here than, than a lot of other states that you don't have, you 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 don't expect to ever meet your U.S. senator. They're a person you see on TV or read about in the paper. You expect your, to see and you expect to, at some point in time to be able to see or meet your governor. You 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 expect your governor to show up at the Mountain Laurel Festival or Woolly Worm or Fancy Farm or you know the the what whatever whatever local pig pick and gathering you got. That's just something that's expected by 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 uh, Kentucky voters, Republican and Democrat, in in a gubernatorial election. So I do think that that disconnect between between kind of the unknowable TV figure in Senate and somebody who's a little bit more real in governor that blunts the Trump effect a little bit when you're talking about a governor's race. Yeah, that's a good point. Jasmine, anything else? No, I think that's it. All right. Uh, all right. Well, Trey, um, for people who don't know, where can they find your podcast and uh, what's it called? How do they how do they get to it? That kind of stuff. It's uh, Kentucky Politics Weekly. Probably all the same places you find this fine program uh, anywhere you're, you got it streaming. Um, I think I think we're on every format. If you somehow find one that we're not on, please be sure to shoot me down on Twitter or something. And uh, I would also say that if you enjoyed this, uh, go check it out because after we finish recording this, we're going to switch over to the zoom and we're going to talk about uh democrat down ticket yeah uh next next year with these guys uh kind of do it do a do a crossover it's like the time that the jetsons and the flintstones met up it'd be great <laughs> all right well, let's <laughs> let's get to that all right thank you very much thanks man jasmine how can people get a hold of us they can find us on twitter and instagram at my old kwap pod they can find our facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice we also have a newsletter that comes out on Fridays. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash newsletter. We also have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash podcast. And we're part of the Dimcast Network and the Ford Kentucky Network. Yeah, check out my interview with Bruce this week about the elections. There's two now, so listen to those if you can. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. I go down.